like the sun. You can shut it out for a time, but it ain't going away. Elvis Presley. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Everywhere and Nowhere, a true crime podcast dedicated to reviewing cold cases, missing cases, and other true crime mysteries in a hope to shed light on the dark paths of criminal behavior. I'm your host, Grayson Snow. Today's episode will focus on the Springfield 3 overall and a few potential correlations to other alleged victims of Larry Hall. So let's dive right in. Summer heat in Missouri is a heat that overwhelms the mind, the body, and the soul. A concept no one thought of when planning the graduation ceremony, we were preparing to head to for my brother. This was my first experience with high school graduation, and even though it was, I can vaguely remember all the festivities. We had graduation ceremonies, parties, family gatherings, and I can't remember many of the details. A stepping stone in life from adolescence to adulthood, and none of the moments stand out in my mind as any more important than another. The moments in time should be etched into memory and family history, stories to tell our children and grandchildren, should be of the excitement of the day. The pride that our family had as he walked across the stage, accepted the diploma that detailed his completion of a major life event as a young adult. I love my brother, and we are far closer now as adults than we were as children. I know that because we are close, I can call him, talk to him, and reminisce with him about these moments. And these moments are a memory we can share once again. Now the summer of 1992, I can remember as clearly as if it were yesterday. Summer of 1992 was a summer that changed everyone's lives because the Springfield Three went missing. Three women who had just participated in the same life passage and celebrating high school graduation, gone. A mother who experienced the same pride my family had, her daughter walking across that stage and accepting a symbol of what should be a vestige of life and new experiences, gone. A friend and daughter who had worked towards fulfilling lifelong dreams and aspirations, they too had walked across that stage looking at life as if it was just at the precipice of new, gone. They were all gone. Three vibrant, loved women whose lives were ripped away from them and their families, and no one knows why. Three women who, to this day, no one knows where they are. No one knows what happened. They are just gone. I remember walking into a store or driving down the road and seeing their faces. Their beautiful faces plastered on missing posters and television shows. They were literally everywhere and nowhere to be found. Everyone was talking about what might have happened or what they heard at a friend's party, 
who had seen them last, or what they remember talking about with the girls the day before graduation. I remember seeing them featured on national television shows like America's Most Wanted and news episodes one after another. They were gone. These women having gone missing changed our small town. We started going places and groups, checking in as often as possible, and making sure we were never out at night by ourselves. But deep down, we were truly clueless to the world that was around us. We were clueless to the evil in our world that lurked literally in the shadows and followed our every step. So many of us were fortunate, or these beautiful women were not. Those of us that were bystanders, yes, life was forever changed. But for these families, life briefly stopped in the chaos of evil, then started a new path within the destruction with the hopes that someday they would have answers. Nearly 30 years have passed and still no one knows why. Why have two families lived for so long with no answers, and why is no one doing anything about it? This case is a puzzle with countless pieces that aren't coming together as a clear picture. Don't get me wrong, this is not a conspiracy theory that the police are covering up something. This is not a sleight-of-hand situation where a magician wants us to look at one thing while he surprises us with another out of thin air. Think of it more as someone who has taken five puzzles that all look similar, but are obviously not the same puzzle, and dump them all on the same table. Now let's bring to the figurative table 100 different people from different cultures randomly coming by the table, looking at the pieces of the puzzle, and trying to connect the pieces of at least one complete puzzle. Each person has been able to connect a few puzzle pieces here and there, but no one has completed the puzzle. It's not impossible, just very difficult. Really and truly, the only difference here is we, the general public, have only been given a quarter to a half of each puzzle. And with good reason, we won't be getting the whole puzzle, meaning details are withheld so the authorities know when they have the actual perpetrator, if that person confirms a detail not released to the general public. But what if we, as the general public, help separate the pieces of the puzzle, then help put together the part of the puzzle that we have been given? What if all it takes is a different perspective at the table? Instead of standing on one side of the table, we move across to the opposite side of the table and look at the pieces of the puzzle from a different angle. What's that old saying? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? It's time to look at things differently. 
to do this, we need to start from the beginning because there are so many details. To this case, we need to connect as many puzzle pieces together as we can. June 6, 1992 was a hot summer day. The temperature was in the upper 70s and the entire town was buzzing, preparing for all the high school commencement ceremonies scheduled for that day. Cheryl Lovett and Susie Streeter, along with Stacy McCall and her family, were all in attendance at the Kickapoo High School graduation. With the ceremonies being held at the then SMSU campus, now known as MSU, parking was a nightmare, and finding a close seat to the stage for pictures was just as intense. I can picture the bleachers with seating filling up and the families trying to gather together to try to save seats. After they find a decent section of seating, two family members stay behind to ward off others looking for seating, with family jackets, purses, and personal items sitting in each seat, indicating that someone had already marked them as theirs. Slowly, each family settles, and moments after settling in, the excitement of the graduation procession begins. Friends and family that are there to watch the ceremony bob and weave as they attempt to find their child walking into the next stage of life as an adult. The families settling in watch nervous young men and women waiting to be called. After being called, a child prays that they don't trip as they walk that stage and take the diploma in one hand, shake with the other, hoping they get the correct hand in the correct place at the right time. The ceremonies end and that moment passes, taking each individual into life as a high school graduate. As attendees disperse into a sea of excitement, the dinners and parties begin. On June 6th, Cheryl parted ways with the girls at some point earlier in the day and went about her own schedule. That evening, she settled in at her home with her little Yorkie cinnamon, located at 1717 East Delmar Street in Springfield, Missouri. Susie and Stacy prepared for a night of parties with their friends, bouncing from one location to another, celebrating and spending time with friends. Originally planning on attending a party, then to head to Branson for a night at a hotel, and then a day at Whitewater Amusement Park the next day. As the evening progressed, their plans had changed on a couple of occasions as to where they were going to stay, and eventually the plans were for them to stay the night at Janelle Kirby's house. Stacy called her mom and told her of the change in plans. Janice, Stacy's mom, was glad to hear the change, and the girls went about the night partying and enjoying the evening with friends. After arriving at the Kirby home, they realized that a house full of family visiting from out of state would mean they were going to spend the night sleeping on a pallet of blankets on the floor. After a short discussion, it was quickly realized that sleeping on the floor would not be nearly as comfortable as a waterbed that Susie had just gotten for graduation. In a last-minute decision, the girls decide to leave Janelle's to head to Susie's. 
they agreed to call Janelle in the morning and they would meet up to go to Whitewater. Janelle never heard from them the next morning. She attempted to call several times and after getting no answer, Janelle and her boyfriend, Michael, decided to go over to the house. The telling of these events from here are a little muddled, but I hope to put together a timeline of events in a future episode. I don't know if it is because of how the information was given or if the different media outlets at the time presented it that way, but I find that because so much information out there can be confusing, I will try to use only information that I found on sources that seem consistent. I will also try to point out any inconsistencies that I have noticed or found myself. Upon arriving at the home around noon, the two knocked on the door and no one answered. Janelle tried the door and it was unlocked. Michael and Janelle also found the globe to the front porch light to be broken. They swept it up, threw it in the trash. After entering the home, they found Cinnamon frantic, and in my opinion, probably scared. As an animal lover and Yorkie owner, I can only imagine how Cinnamon is reacting at this moment, having witnessed anything that was outside of her comfort zone. After they check the house, they find that no one is home, and nothing looks alarming. While in the home, the phone rings, and Janelle answers the phone, and reportedly it is determined to be a prank call. They left, leaving the door unlocked. As the day progressed, news got to Stacy's mom, and she too decided she needed to go by the house and check. I could not find anything that mentions if anyone is documented as coming to the Delmar home between this visit and the time when Stacy's mom arrived, but I have always wondered if there were any other people who may have come to check. Janice McCall, along with those that accompanied her, found the home to be empty as well. When they found all the cars and all the women's purses, keys, and other personal effects like cigarettes still in the home, and none of the women present, they felt it was time to call the police. At some point during this time, the answering machine is erased after being listened to, and another prank call is mentioned as having been left. Both the call that Janelle answered and the message on the machine are reported as being of a sexual and vulgar nature. When police arrive, they find several people gathered around waiting their assistance. And to their surprise, the friends and family had wanted to help and had already cleaned up a little. Police determined that the circumstances felt odd but could not find any obvious signs of a struggle. Cheryl's bed appeared as if she had slept in it. The blankets were drawn down, again, with no obvious signs of being rushed. It was almost as if she had gone to bed that night and at some point got up to check on the girls or maybe answer the door. 
Susie's room looked like a typical teenage girl room, and it too showed no signs of obvious struggle or having anything off about it whatsoever. No one, including the officers, felt anything seemed to be strange. They also see the women's purses were stacked neatly together with wallets, cash, and personal items still inside. After doing a thorough check of the home, the police decide to leave a note on the door, asking Cheryl to call when she gets the message. They lock the door and leave. Here's where we start taking steps down that dark path we have already briefly glimpsed in episode one. We know that the home does not show signs of an apparent struggle. Personal effects are found gathered together, such as purses, wallets, and cigarettes. This fact, as well as the fact that based on the items of clothing that were documented, it appears as if Stacy had left the home in only her t-shirt and undergarments, leaving police and others to wonder who would do such a thing of their own free will. These details are just the top two of the most puzzling attributes of this case that many return to time and time again. We also briefly discussed in episode one another alleged victim, missing from her home without any signs of a struggle, and her personal effects were left, including her purse and favorite shoes. I don't know who said it first, but I have heard it most of my life. Once is a chance, twice is a coincidence, third time is a pattern. If this holds as true as it has in the past, then more than three times is a series of patterns. And looking at the Springfield 3 case in comparison to just one other alleged victim of Hall, so far, we have one similarity. For now, we will stick with calling this a coincidence, and we'll dive into other alleged victims in later episodes. Police begin to work the case as tips come flooding in. The local newspaper details the case every day, as well as police appear on local newscasts. Vetted tips are divulged to the public with the hope additional tips will come in, connecting more pieces to the puzzle. An interview of a woman led to details of a band sighting just east of the Delmore home. The details of this sighting were vetted and police felt it to be so credible that a replica of this van was purchased and placed in front of the police department headquarters, again hoping more tips would come in. This van sat in front of the police department for several months. How can a piece of information that was vetted and so credible that the police department invested the time and energy to display a van for months now be treated as so trivial? It was displayed in the hopes that it could bring more tips about a similar older model van. However, the tip that came in only appeared to confuse or lead the public to question its validity. 
first it was a green band, a metallic green band, brown band, a white band, a blue band. No one knew whether the van truly existed at that point. Maybe it's just time to look at the van from a different angle. I'm sure you are all aware of the 2015 Is This Dress Black and Blue or White and Gold phenomenon. For those of you who may not know, a picture circulated on social media outlets asking if you saw either a black and blue dress or a white and gold dress when viewing the image. Without taking us through that overly exposed debate, the bottom line was different people saw a different dress because of the lighting. Whether it was their phone or the angle of the picture, it all boiled down to lighting. Maybe the black and blue dress phenomenon will prove to have been useful after all. And the reason some people saw a green van and others saw a brown van was simply because of the street lighting they were near at the time they saw the vehicle. Although I do not have an exact date of when streetlights in Springfield changed, I can say that many of the streetlights around town were either a yellowish-orange hue, or in some places, they were white. Just a different perspective to the puzzle laid out on the table. Some sightings mention dirty white van, or a white van with rusted bottom. In those cases, maybe the individual saw a two-tone van that was actually just darker on the bottom rather than dirty. After all that is said, this information gives us the potential that the van seen at the time may have been a different color based on where the van was and the time of day it was seen. How are these pieces of the puzzle a possible connection to Larry Dwayne Hall? It is documented that at the time, near the Missing Three abduction, Hall was known to own both a greenish-teal older model van as well as a brown and tan van. He was known to drive his personal vehicle while traveling across the U.S. to his favorite hobbies of Civil War reenactments and car shows. Once is a chance, twice is a coincidence. And here we are again with another coincidence. So we have the potential connection within a body type. That is allegedly that of Larry Hall's preference. We have the potential connection of the two cases we've looked at thus far, having similarities in the abduction. We have two eerily similar situations where the Reitlers were called with an eerie message and Janelle intercepted an eerie message at the Levitt home. Now we have another potential connection in regards to Larry Hall's documented vehicles and those reported as being seen during or around the time the Springfield 3 went missing. Again, once is a chance, twice is a coincidence, a third time's a pattern. Keep walking with me down this dark path because the similarities and details between other alleged victims and the Springfield 3 are about to come to light as we examine more of his alleged victims 
and more of his stalking patterns. As a true crime novice at best, I can tell you the similarities, patterns, and details are so eerily similar, I had to share these connections. To do so, it's time to truly get to know Paul's alleged victims, his alleged stalking patterns, as well as a few details I think I've stumbled onto in my own research. To truly see all these potential connections, we really need to spend time getting to know more. I want to take a moment here and clarify, this podcast is not a witch hunt in any way, shape, or form. There is a list of potential suspects, and from what I see in most other podcasts and videos, the general public seem to focus on one of those individuals, Robert Craig Cox. I'm not saying he isn't a viable suspect, I'm just saying it's time to look at everything from a different perspective. I'm also saying that if we are not willing to look at any other suspect, in an attempt to find the individual who may potentially be the most likely of perpetrators, we will never be able to narrow the list of suspects. And we may never be able to find the actual perpetrator or the women. True crime fans know that without finding a pattern in the details that correlate a case to the potential suspects, the case will have very little chance of being solved. We should, and will, do a comparison of other suspects and their MO, as well as their alleged victims and rituals. Oh, while on the subject of details, one element about vans that stood out while researching. The 1985 Blue Dodge van that was reportedly stolen between June 4th and June 9th of 1992, around the time the Springfield 3 went missing, just so happened to be found in the state of Indiana, which is the home state of Larry Hall. In the Springfield Newsleader on October 31st, 1993, it is reported that the stolen Blue Dodge van was found in an RV park in Ripley County, which is in southeast Indiana. No driver of the vehicle was found. Although it has been almost 30 years since it was located, I was a little bit shocked with what information I could not get on the matter. With details in hand, from the article in the Springfield Newsleader, I started making calls. Details provided in the article state that the van would be sent to the Indianapolis police to check the vehicle for evidence, and then let the Springfield police know what they found. I contacted the Indianapolis police to attempt to confirm where the van was found. I was told I needed to contact the Indiana State Police because it was not in the same county and it would have been transferred into Indianapolis for the state police to handle. When I contacted the Indiana State Police, I was told I needed to contact the state the vehicle was stolen from to get information regarding the circumstances. 
When I contacted the Springfield police, I was told without a VIN, the owner of the vehicle, and more details than date and description, they would not be able to provide any information. What information I was able to obtain while researching Ripley County, I found some extremely interesting facts about the area. For Sales State Park is located almost smack dab in the center of the county and has a beautiful covered bridge, Bushing Bridge, that you cross as you enter the park area just before getting to the State Park office. This bridge crosses over Laffery Creek. From what I was able to find on Google, the area is very majestic. The images of the bridge truly are breathtaking. I wasn't able to find any information as to what RV park the van was found in, but I was able to find one in the state park and four outside of the state park, which returned in my Google search. That brings us to the end of episode two. I want to thank you all for listening. Episode 3 will take us into other alleged Larry Hall victims. If you have any information regarding the Springfield 3, please contact the Springfield Police Department at 417-864-1810. I'm still very curious about the stolen van that ended up being found in Indiana. So if you have any more information about this, feel free to contact the podcast at everywhere and nowhere to be found at gmail thank you for listening to everywhere and nowhere a true crime podcast sources for this podcast include the springfield news leader christopher martin's book urges a chronicle of serial killer larry hall the podcast the springfield three a small town disappearance and podcast The Vanished and Google Maps. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Grayson Snow. I'll see you next time on Everywhere and Nowhere, a true crime podcast. Everyone, everywhere, please stay safe. Episode 2 was written and submitted by an analyst who wishes to remain anonymous. It has been read and edited by me, your host, Grayson Snow. This podcast is a Mouse Murder Productions LLC creation.